Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Evolving Management Strategies for BRAF Mutant Metastatic Colorectal Cancer, is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to this educational activity entitled Evolving Management Strategies for BRAF Mutated Metastatic Colorectal Cancer. My name is Scott Kopetz. I'm a professor of GI Medical Oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and I'm very pleased uh, and honored to be uh, joined by Dr. Rona Yeager, uh, who's an associate professor uh, and the associate director of the Colorectal Cancer Center Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center in New York. Here's a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents uh, or agents that are in development. Here's our financial disclosure information. And the learning objectives for this activity. So let's start with a bit of an overview of BRAF V600E mutation uh, and its uh, impact in colorectal cancer. I think it's worth taking a step back and really recognizing that colorectal cancer is a diverse uh, set of cancers that really derive from different uh, initial pathways, including the classical uh, chromosomal instability uh, pathway, and then other pathways that lead to microsatellite instability um, that's overlapping somewhat with the serrated uh, or the methylated pathway. And it's this last pathway, the sessile serrated adenoma pathway that is associated with very high rates of BRAF V600E mutation, but also a very interestingly strongly associated with uh, methylation and epigenetic dysregulation. This can on occasion also result in deficient mismatch repair through MLH1 uh, methylation. Uh, but this is not a one-to-one uh, -one overlap. We know that this is a unique population with uh, distinct clinical and pathologic features as well. There's a preponderance of this disease in the right side of, uh, of the colon, although certainly we can see BRAF V600E mutations in other parts of the colon as well. And there's a, a slight predominance towards uh, um, older ages, uh, more women than men, um, and associated with this biology that I uh, described previously. Clinically very different as well with distinct metastatic spreads. So these are patients that have high rate of peritoneal and nodal metastases and do very poorly with standard of care uh, therapy um, where traditionally we're seeing much shorter progression-free survival across multiple lines of therapy. When we look at the prognosis of the V600E colorectal cancer stage by stage, the distinction between the dotted lines that are wild type and the solid lines uh, that have the BRAF V600E mutation, large distinctions, including very large separations even for stage two and three patients. So we know that this is uh, a, um, a, a prognostic marker, uh, both in early and late stage disease, um, and that this can have uh, implications in recurrence. Now, 
this is uh, data from patients who present uh, and get profiled at uh, academic centers, uh, highlighting some work by John Laurie, um, who looked at some population estimates of patients that uh, that may not have actually presented to uh, receive care in an oncologist, actually suggesting in that setting a BRAF uh, mutation may be associated with substantially worse outcomes, so median overall survival, including those patients who did and didn't re uh, receive oncologic evaluation, uh, you can see a substantial difference. Now, we also know that BRAF E600E is associated with unique uh, transcriptional subtypes as well. So one of the classification systems that we use in the field is called the consensus molecular subtypes or CMS that really use the RNA profiling to help determine the different biology of colorectal cancer. And that's been uh, previously um, separated into these four different groups. The BRAF mutated tumors tend to have a much higher predominance of being in this CMS1 immune activated subgroup that have this high degree of hypermethylation uh, as well as a higher rate of MSI high. But intriguingly, even the microsatellite stable BRAF uh, patients can also present with this transcriptional profile. So we know uh, in summary that the V600E uh, BRAF mutated tumors are a unique subpopulation with respect to clinical outcomes, poor survival, poor responses to standard of care, uh, systemic cytotoxic chemotherapy, unique pathologic characteristics, and uh, respect to the mutation profiles there as well. And as mentioned, really strong epigenetic uh, components uh, being seen too. So this, uh, in summary, this unique biology for BRAF E600E colorectal cancer patients leads to a uh, challenge in our clinical presentation and also uh, really requires that we think about this as a distinct uh, tumor entity. So with that, hopefully convince you that this is something that we should be testing for. And actually, when we look at our guidelines, the NCCN says that this should be part of uh, our panel, both NRAS, KRAS, and BRAF should be done on all metastatic uh, patients. And likewise, you that for ESMO and ESMO Asia. So really global uh, consensus that uh, BRAF testing should be done for all metastatic patients. Now, one of the areas that has come up is, well, what about the role of, uh, of EGFR inhibitors? And is BRAF V600E a, a negative predictor of outcome for, uh, in, for EGFR uh, inhibition, just like a KRAS or an NRAS mutation? And here, uh, showing some uh, analyses demonstrating that in a BRAF and RAS wild-type population, you see uh, benefit in these uh, in the meta-analysis of uh, EGFR inhibitors that that we're not able to demonstrate that uh, that degree of benefit from EGFR inhibition in those uh, RAS wild type but BRAF mutated V600E uh, tumors. So we really think about this as a subset that does not uh, benefit from EGFR uh, inhibitors alone. However, uh, we know that uh, that it can be a target uh, in and of itself. And there are opportunities to uh, really uh, treat this as we'll talk about in more detail uh, with targeted therapies. 
So just uh, acknowledging that while there's a present uh, in uh, a minority of the population, it is one of our larger molecularly defined subsets of colorectal cancer, somewhere in that uh, seven, eight percent, perhaps as high as 10 percent in some series of uh, patients with colorectal cancer. Now, this mutation is an activating oncogenic mutation such that we see that the tumor then activates cell signaling uh, and cell cycle progression through MAP kinase pathway. There's certainly been efforts historically to use BRAF inhibitors um, in this uh, setting. And what uh, we can see is that there's certainly single agent BRAF uh, can have activity across a number of different tumor types um, and including BRAF and neck targeted therapies similarly as well. Um, and as we'll come back to, that uh, inhibition in colorectal cancer is very different. And that one of the uh, key features that we'll touch on a little later is, you know, why is colorectal cancer different and how uh, can we understand how colorectal cancer uh, adapts to that therapy um, and how we can then uh, deploy novel therapies. Yeah, I'd like to bring in uh, Dr. Yeager to... Uh, really kind of discuss some of the uh, some of these initial um, features about colorectal cancer, BRAF E600E biology. So Rona, first again, thank you for uh, for joining me and for sharing your expertise. Um, can you explain some of the uh, rationale why we see such poor prognosis and poor outcomes in colorectal cancer for these patients, and you know really expand on your perspective of the need for uh, for treatment options? Yeah, thank you for having me here. Um, it's a pleasure to join you. Um, I think it's a difficult question of what is underlying the biologic aggressive behavior of these tumors. I think we have um, maybe a few insights, but we don't really know the real mechanism. So um, as you showed, the um, BRAF V600E mutated colorectal cancers are really like a different subset um, with a different behavior. And we can even see um, that they are often poorly differentiated. They, um, when localized, are more likely to have a nodal, sense of nodal involvement. So kind of aggressive features. Um, that may be underlying um, some of this biology. Um, I think the, um, the behavior, the proclivity for certain metastatic sites um, may underlie the short survival that you have showed. So as you showed that BRF is associated with certain metastatic spread. So peritoneal disease and um, ascites are commonly seen and um, difficult to treat. And that may be part of it. We also see um, um, distant nodes that we often don't see um, with other molecular subsets. So um, axillary nodes, um, superclavicular nodes that we don't really think of as colorectal nodes. So there is probably something underlying that spread. And I don't think we know the biologic basis, but we have a clinical sense of a different behavior that might underlie the poor prognosis. Okay. Well, thank you. Nicely uh, summarized. And, um, and can you discuss kind of the clinical implications uh, of a BRAF mutation? So when you, when you, uh, you know, get that result back on a patient, what are your thoughts in terms of the clinical impact? And then, you know, how do you communicate that if you do to your patient? Yeah, so um, I think the the first thing is that, as you showed that the um, 
outcomes with standard chemotherapy are disappointing. And luckily for us, we now are starting to have treatments that are matched to the mutation. So I often tell patients um, quite straightforward that um, we think of BRAF as an aggressive feature, but it opens for us a treatment option that may give us the opportunity to do better. Um, so I think it has implications for choice of treatment. And as you showed also um, for EGFR inhibitors, um, selecting appropriate regimen and the, um, the absence of activity to EGFR inhibitors alone is important as we think about um, what, what treatments we're going to use and um, what, whether we use combinations. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's summarized nicely. And it's, I think that balance of discussion with the patients about acknowledging it's it's poor prognosis, but then, you know, leaving them with the hope that we now have something tangible that we can, uh, that we can target. Um, so when do you do BRAF testing? Uh, do you, is it something that you do uh, in, uh, in early stage, stage two, three, and, you know, how and when do you test BRAF in stage four? So all patients with stage four disease should have BRAF testing. Um, it can be done as a PCR, since we know that the V600E mutation is a clinically important alteration, but often now it's done with next generation sequencing panels where we get a lot more information. Um, in early stage disease, it doesn't guide our treatment, but um, as we shift to using some of these next generation panels, some of them are being brought in earlier for the information such as um, MMR, uh, MSI status. So we, sometimes we know BRAF um, status as well early on. Um, but in patients who have metastatic disease, um, once we know they have metastatic disease, um, ideally before first line treatment, um, they should be tested for uh, the presence of a BRAF V600A mutation. Okay. Great. Yeah, I think that's absolutely something we do in our standard practice. Everyone's getting that testing for stage four. I will say for stage two, three, it's it's not completely clear that doing testing is uh, beneficial yet. Although, you know, we certainly uh, hope that this can be incorporated in uh, future adjuvant therapy, and it may be something in the future that uh, that we're more widely recommending. But I think currently guidelines are not uh, not um, requiring BRAF testing for the earlier stage, um, as mentioned. Okay, um, so the final question for you, Rona, is um, when you uh, have a patient that has a BRAF V600E uh, mutation, um, before you start to think about targeted therapies, as we'll get into in the next section, um, how do you uh, think about deploying standard of care chemotherapies? Do you tend to bias more towards a full foxiri kind of triplet cytotoxic for initial treatment of patients? Um, or are you uh, treating them differently in any way with that initial regimen? So I think the um, it's not truly settled. What is the best first line regimen? Um, I tend to use doublet treatment. Um, and I um, tend to save um, the other agent for a later line, often third line, um, after targeted therapy. Um, as you alluded to, there is some data, as this is an aggressive subset, that um, triplet therapy with um, 
a full Fox Erie um, combination regimen may help improve outcomes and in patients who are fit and able to tolerate it is worth considering. Um, I often don't have the BRAF status at the time I start treatment. So um, in my center, it takes time to get the sequencing results. So often we start. And so if I see someone is on a doublet and they have kind of a so-so response, um, stable-ish, I may add that um, third chemotherapeutic agent and get some more activity that way. And also I would see the, their tolerance at that point. So I'm, I feel comfortable adding that third agent if I see they're able to tolerate it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that summarizes our uh, experience as well. I will say, as you acknowledge, there was some older evidence suggesting that perhaps BRAF uh, patients had a preferential benefit with the triplet compared to the doublet based on very small numbers of patients. And it turns out in subsequent studies that really has not been uh, validated. And so we kind of think about, uh, you know, that there could be benefit from a triplet cytotoxic with BRAF, just like there could in other kind of more aggressive uh, subsets of colorectal potentially as well, but it may not be unique to the BRAF patients. Okay, uh, so we'll now turn and talk a little bit more about some of the combination treatment approaches in patients that have had some prior treatment with a BRAF E600E mutation positive metastatic colorectal cancer. So as alluded to before, and to set the stage, uh, that the BRAF inhibitors alone did not uh, provide uh, as much uh, benefit compared to other tumor types, including melanoma. So this is some of the original work just showing a very similar levels of activity between very different levels of activity, despite having very uh, similar mutation profile, identical treatments, same study uh, here. And and, uh, and that kind of led to a whirlwind of work to try to understand the uh, reasons why BRAF uh, V600E tumors are, uh, are avoiding uh, cell death. And uh, a nice summary of a large uh, body of work uh, by Renee Bernards, uh, Ryan Corcoran and others have demonstrated this concept of adaptive resistance. And the uh, idea here is that uh, Homeostatic regulation uh, is critical in biologic systems, including cancer cells, and that it's, this is especially true in colorectal and especially true of, of growth pathways such as the MAP kinase. And the recognition is that inhibition of a single node in a pathway results in a compensation in the signaling to restore homeostasis. Um, so specifically, for example, here the uh, green pathways showing activation after the mutation in BRAF. And what happens is that uh, with inhibition of BRAF, you get a transient uh, inhibition in the uh, MAP kinase uh, signaling pathway, but that releases these feedback mechanisms. And these feedback mechanisms then uh, can uh, release um, upstream inhibition of a number of things, including signaling through the EGFR pathway. And this signaling then can come down uh, signal uh, around the uh, inhibited BRAF V600E and restore uh, pathway activation. So a key finding was that uh, that even though, as we talked about before, the BRAF uh, tumors are not sensitive to an EGFR inhibitor alone, the key finding is that when you inhibit BRAF, you now uncover through this adaptive resistance uncover a dependency on EGFR. And then when you inhibit EGFR, now you can get uh, pathway inhibition. 
And there's uh, a large uh, body of work of a uh, number of early stage um, studies that led up to this, but uh, the end result was the recent uh, Beacon trial, which uh, is a study of uh, patients with second uh, or third line BRAF E600E metastatic colorectal cancer uh, without prior treatment with an EGFR inhibitor. Uh, now treated with either a control arm of uh, chemotherapy and uh, an EGFR or doublet of BRAF and EGFR, ankorafenib and cetuximab, or interestingly, a triplet arm where there was a, a MEK inhibitor included as well, based on some early single arm data suggesting that the MEK inhibitors may improve outcome. Primary outcomes, a co-primary of overall survival and, uh, and objective response rate. The bottom line uh, is that there was indeed uh, improvement in overall survival uh, with the doublet of 9.3 months versus the control of 5.9 months. That was statistically significant and met its primary endpoint. Um, the uh, response rates uh, were higher uh, than as well, and response rates of uh, 2% in the control and 20% in the doublet with waterfall plots there. Intriguingly, however, the addition of the MEK inhibitor, uh, although it uh, did increase the response rate, did not improve overall survival or progression-free survival, and so that was not recommended to proceed forward. So the FDA has now approved ankorafenib in combination with cetuximab uh, for second or third line uh, colorectal cancer with a BRAF V600E mutation. Uh, so discussion of some of the adverse events, uh, we do see uh, uh, that the doublet is very well tolerated um, and overall lower rates of grade three and above adverse events compared to control. The MEK inhibitor did add toxicity, but again, did not uh, add meaningfully to the overall uh, survival and, uh, and is no longer recommended in uh, standard of care. Now, some specific uh, toxicities of interest. Uh, we do see a number of dermatologic changes, including keratoacanthomas, some of those changes. Um, so these are things that should be monitored and watched. Um, and we do occasionally require dermatologic intervention for, uh, for uh, treatment of these. Other side effects we can see include myalgia, arthralgias. These can be treated conservatively. Uh, occasionally, if severe dose interruptions or even low-dose steroids for a short duration. Uh, we do see on occasion renal dysfunction and a number of, uh, of manifestations that can occur, um, and, uh, and we, the recommendation is to monitor that, um, you know, maintaining adequate fluid intake, um, as well as uh, just being uh, cognizant of uh, this potential. Now, as mentioned, uh, really not any improvement with the addition of the, the MEK inhibitor. Um, there uh, were some uh, subgroup analyses that looked at patients with more uh, involved uh, disease, higher uh, organ involvement, higher CEA, more uh, inflammatory um, disease state as measured by the C-reactor protein may respond uh, better with the addition of the MEK inhibitor, but all of those remain uh, exploratory at this point. So uh, and while we recognize that MEK inhibition wasn't the uh, solution to improve the outcome of uh, BRAF and EGFR, uh, there are efforts to uh, really kind of focus on uh, 
uh, earlier administration that uh, may result in, uh, in better outcomes. Um, and this is being manifested in earlier uh, trials um, as, uh, as we'll uh, have a chance to kind of chat a little bit about. There are uh, first-line studies ongoing as well as discussions about uh, and studies in the adjuvant setting um, that are of interest to try to explore as well. And I think recognition that there's more uh, that are needed to understand uh, signaling uh, at the time of, of progression as well. Uh, we have multiple different resistance mechanisms that had been identified, including RAS mutations, EGFR pathway activations, MEK mutations, uh, amplifications of various uh, uh, key pathways, um, and this all results in MAP kinase pathway reactivation. This is really intriguing that we really have not come across a, a mechanism of resistance that has not in some way led to MAP kinase pathway reactivation. And so we, you know, I kind of think about this and describe it to my patients as kind of a convergent evolution, right? It's multiple different ways that, uh, that the tumor has evolved to all do the same thing, right? And, uh, and uh, just as we see, you know, convergent evolution in, in biology where we have a very similar uh, phenotype and, and feature of, uh, of certain uh, animals, even though they evolve in different ways. So this is a key feature. And as Dr. Yeager mentioned earlier, uh, you know, we talk to patients and say, you know, this gives us something to, uh, to target. And, uh, and I think just acknowledging there's a number of different combinations being explored in uh, patients uh, on anchorafenib and cetuximab who progress. Uh, including looking at PANRAF inhibitors, SHIP2 inhibitors, and a number of ERK inhibitor studies then as well. So I think a lot of uh, hope that we'll be able to explore uh, other options in the future um, and kind of explore other combinations that may be able to extend the benefit um, of the uh, BRAF and EGFR combination. So Rona, one of the things we also see is uh, the use of uh, panitumumab uh, in combination with ankorafenib. Uh, what is uh, your thoughts about that, and uh, and do you see that as an equivalent option to cetuximab? Yeah. So the um, FDA approval was for ankorafenib and cetuximab, but the NCCN guidelines include both cetuximab and panitumumab. And there um, is good data that they really are very similar. They've been compared head to head in terms of efficacy. Um, so I think that in terms of e efficacy, they have similar efficacy in the setting. The cetuximab has a higher rate of an allergic reaction, while the panitumab may have more um, dermatologic toxicity. Um, I think that different places may have preference for which EGFR antibody is used. And we have no reason to think that one will work better in the setting. So I think um, the use of either is appropriate. Um, like you, since we were involved with ankorafenib and cetuximab, I, I usually have the preference for that regimen, but um, I think it's reasonable and it isn't listed in the NCCN guidelines. And now cetuximab is listed um, with a every two week um, schedule, which also makes the regimen simpler. So thank you, Scott, for um, really all the information and for the great overview. Um, I brought uh, two cases of patients of mine that um, I thought were interesting cases that I thought would be interesting to discuss together. So the first patient is um, presented when she was 68 years old. 
um, with no past medical history, um, active, feeling well, who was up to date with all of her health maintenance and was found to be anemic and diagnosed with a DVT. Um, and had been up to date with her colonoscopies. The last one was two years earlier, but because of the new anemia and DVT was referred for a repeat colonoscopy. And the colonoscopy now showed a mass in the ascending colon. It wasn't um, completely obstructing, but was biopsied and found to be an infiltrating, moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma. Um, so she had a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis to evaluate further that showed um, circumferential wall thickening of the cecum and ascending colon with associated luminal narrowing and um, associated lymphadenopathy in the area and developed some pain while getting set up for surgery and was actually admitted um, and went directly to surgery. But before the surgery had a repeat scan for the pain that showed a possible subcapsular hepatic lesion. Um, so at surgery, she had resection with a right hemicolectomy and was actually found to have a T4 N2 cancer of the cecum. The tumor was mildly differentiated and MMR proficient. So I brought this case up because I um, thought it was interesting. I had a few features that I found striking. Um, first of all, um, it seemed like things happened very fast in this patient who had been up to date. And even though she had a colonoscopy, it seemed like this tumor developed quickly. Um, and I think it was quite advanced for someone who was really quite up to date. And also, um, I, I think it echoes what you had mentioned about um, being a little older woman, right-sided tumors. Um, um, and I think those are things we, we frequently see. So 68, I mean, I think we can all argue that's probably not older, but um, definitely we see um, uh, an, an age shift um, for, for BRAF. Um, so I um, actually met her after surgery and she came to me with a story. She had had a really tough time with surgery. She lost a lot of weight and actually had a wound back in place um, and was recovering when I met her. Um, so I said to her, we should evaluate what was seen in the scan and got a liver MRI, which unfortunately showed a lesion in the um, right hepatic lobe with two small satellite lesions. So um, I decided, but I want your thoughts, because um, she at that point had little liver disease, to think about starting systemic therapy. So I guess my, my, my first question is, um, you know, I'm, I'm meeting this person who just had surgery, had a tough time, but comes with what, what appears to be limited disease. Um, and we set, we set her up um, for mutation testing, but um, I, I guess we have to think of how to time everything. Yeah, it's a, a great case. It really highlights, uh, you know, a lot of things that we, uh, we see in our, you know, real practice that it'd be great to have all that molecular information the time the patient was right in front of you, but that's not our practice, right? We, we don't have, uh, you know, it takes some time to get that and to really have the picture uh, become clear. So um, I completely agree that, uh, you know, patients that uh, that present like this, um, you know, especially when we have patients that have really high nodal involvement like that, um, you know, even if it's an isolated, you know, resectable disease in the liver, um, there's always uh, kind of an inclination to kind of start systemic chemotherapy and really kind of assess what the biology, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, tincture of time uh, to see what's going on. I think especially, like you mentioned, someone at a tough time with surgery is not not ready to turn around and uh, and repeat anything uh, surgical there. So certainly agree that that starting some first line uh, therapy would be uh, would be my practice as well. 
I guess the first question, you test your patients with metastatic, newly diagnosed metastatic colorectal cancer for a BRAF mutation. Yeah, so as mentioned, it's something that we, we do on all of our patients. Um, and uh, I think, you know, we are trying to get tissue testing when available. Um, I think sometimes for the reasons you mentioned, when it, you know, when we need to make some treatment decisions sooner, we are now starting to incorporate some circulating tumor DNA into our uh, standard practice for patients with, you know, untreated metastatic disease um, that can help, um, you know, uh, that can give us, a, at least in our uh, ecosystem, gives us a much faster turnaround time on the results, so that can be useful. Uh, but we don't get as much information as we get out of the tissue testing, and so there is a bit of a trade-off there. Uh, but I think the answer is we can try to get that test back as fast as we can. So this patient started first-line treatment with Fulfox. Um, she um, improved um, her performance status as we went through treatment and recovered from surgery. And we ended up doing five cycles and then getting our first scan. Um, over that time, we got the results from the tissue testing um, from the colon resection that showed the um, BRAF V600E mutation. Um, but um, when we got that first scan, um, unfortunately, it showed progression. So then we're left to choose what to do next, second line. Yeah, and that's uh, um, such a, a common situation that we see, you know, when we see uh, a lot of these patients that have this BRAF E600E mutation will have uh, progression, uh, you know, on first-line therapy, which is something we don't normally see, right? Normally, we at least get, you know, some disease stability, uh, if not regression, on those first scans. And so it can be um, kind of a, you know, one of our first reflections of just how aggressive the, the biology is. Um, so, you know, again, we, as a general rule of thumb, we wouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, exclude surgery for patients that have a uh, BRAF V600E, but we'd hold them to the exact same standards that we would for others, right? You, you know, have to have disease under control, you know, has to be kind of, you know, reasonably good biology in order to uh, proceed forward with that. And, uh, and and, you know, there's a lot of discussions of, well, should we just, as a blanket statement, say no one, you know, with the V600E mutation should go to the liver surgery? And I'd say, no, I wouldn't go that far. But we still need to pay attention to the biology, right? And I think, you know, this is a, a, a good example of, you know, a biology that's just not favorable at the moment and, and really trying to think um, about how we can uh, treat her systemically. So I think in this setting now, we, you know, the cytotoxic chemotherapy has not worked. We're now in second line. And I think we can really kind of follow the biology and treat uh, with, uh, with targeted therapy. So this is a patient that I would, you know, then start anchorafinib and, and cetuximab on at this point. So I felt the same. And um, I also gave her anchorafinib and cetuximab second line. Um, she did well with treatment and tolerated well. Um, imaging after um, three months of treatment showed some modest decrease in the liver lesions, which remained overall still a relatively low volume and was seen by um, our liver surgeons who felt that it, disease was resectable and she underwent resection of her liver metastases. Actually, um, after surgery, 
um, not knowing what to do, we ended up doing uh, three more months of encrafting bisotuximab to do a six month to, um, since you didn't get so much Bofox to do a six month perioperative treatment. And she did well and we watched her, but unfortunately um, eight months after surgery, she recurred in the liver. Perhaps speaking to the tough biology of this disease. Yeah, and we also see a lot of uh, nodal recurrence as well. So you know, even these patients that you can clear the liver, sometimes you'll see these retroperitoneal nodes uh, appear very commonly. So I think the same time worth acknowledging that for our liver resection uh, patients, you know, our goals of success aren't always about uh, curing the patient. We'd love to do that if we can, but I think we can say at the same time there's there's this patient probably absolutely value it, you know, having that eight months of off of treatment and having the opportunity to, you know, perhaps uh, recover a bit from her treatment and, and uh, you know, better shape to, to take whatever treatments are coming next. So I chose another case um, with a patient who had um, some side effects with treatment for us to discuss the management of side effects with targeted therapy. So this is another patient um, in my practice. This is a 42-year-old um, a woman. She has a metastatic BRAF E600E colon cancer, um, initially presented stage three, but recurred quickly. So um, um, imaging soon after adjuvant therapy um, showed evidence of recurrence. So she had received adjuvant full FOX treatment very close to when she was found to have recurrent disease. And she received second-line treatment with encarafenib and panitumumab. And um, she struggled with toxicity with the treatment. Um, she's young and active, and she developed um, some dry skin, um, mild acneiform rash on her face, but erythematous nodules um, on her arms and legs that were painful, and astralgia with her uh, upper, um, upper um, shoulders, um, elbows um, that limited her. So my first question would be um, thinking about the causes of these side effects, and then secondly, how how to manage them. Yeah, so I think you know what's described, of course, is a very common uh, pattern. Um, the uh, you know the uh, dry skin, acneiform uh, uh, rash can be attributed uh, to the EGFR predominantly, but also you know there can be some components of that with a single agent uh, VRAF alone. Um, it's uh, you know interesting that uh, anecdotally and perhaps looking at some of the, uh, the non-randomized uh, data out there would suggest that the combination of a BRAF and an EGFR inhibitor may actually result in a lower rates of acneiform uh, rash in a given patients. Um, and so, uh, but you know, again, for a given patient, the question is how to manage that, right? And, and I think we would typically manage that in a way very similar to what we do for an EGFR uh, inhibitor alone uh, and, you know, trying to uh, provide uh, guidance, kind of topical steroids uh, for that as well. As mentioned, the arthralgias, uh, that's kind of uh, uh, the, and probably the erythematous nodules uh, as well tend to be more of the BRAF type of pattern, right? So the uh, and um, and those uh, again, you know, the, the default is is to get the topical steroids, right? It's uh, you know the dermatologist's first choice for many of these <laughs> these type of rashes. Although I must say I have not seen those that 
that erythematous nodularity uh, respond quite as well to steroids as some of the, you know, acneiform-based ones. Um, arthralgias, we will typically do, uh, you know, try to treat conservatively, you know, NSAIDs. Um, trying to, you know, as a first step, trying to do that, uh, avoiding uh, treatment uh, breaks if needed. But there are some patients that, you know, we do occasionally have to uh, to take, you know, treatment breaks uh, and kind of get the arthralgias uh, back under control. But those tend to be fairly rare. So we sent her to the dermatologist um, to give us some guidance as well. And um, the dermatologist felt that the nodular area um, was, like you said, was likely um, related to encarafinib and that she was having toxicity from both agents. Um, the um, the arthralgias, as you mentioned, are related to the encarafinib. And the thought was, since that was causing a big impact on her um, activity level, that our goal would be to try to manage that as best we can. So we ended up giving a low-dose steroid, which gave some relief, um, but we didn't want to continue that. And in this person who um, quickly had progressed after adjuvant therapy, we wanted to push the treatment and we just started. So. Um, at the time, it was before the FDA, we were able to get venomatinib, and we added, uh, we added in venomatinib. And the reason we did that, um, because exactly as you mentioned, that the um, EGFR antibody and the RAF inhibitor can have opposing effects. And since it seemed that she was okay overall with the effect of the EGFR inhibitor, that adding maybe another agent to counter the effect of um, encarafinib might give us some support for the encarafinib-related toxicity that seemed to be limiting her. And so the idea is that perhaps the joints um, and perhaps the, there's some hyperproliferation in the skin due to activation of the pathway from encarafinib in the normal tissues. So we gave benametinib, and with doing that, we're able to stop the steroids and get her to continue. Um, and exactly like you said, we did um, the supportive measures we could to help with the um, acneiform rash. Um, we had um, topical steroids, we had her limit sun, sun exposure. And you know sometimes these um, side effects get better with some time. So we got benametinib on board and a few weeks passed and we kind of reached a balance that we were able to continue treatment um, without actually having to reduce the other agents or delay. Oh, that's fascinating, really interesting. So I'm glad you found a good, good solution for her um, and, uh, and exciting to kind of think about how we can use the biology to not only understand how to best address efficacy, but also the side effects. And I think there's a really fascinating bodies of, uh, of uh, research on, on you know, these type of side effects. So great case. Thank you. So we'll end uh, with a few uh, viewpoints uh, here. I think uh, what we know is that there's a lot of work in this area. And I think I, you know, highlighted uh, some of the, uh, the combinations being explored in, uh, in resistance to uh, BRAF and EGFR, and we await some of those results. Um, and I think there's uh, even other strategies coming uh, beyond that. Um, so we're also kind of uh, been aware of the uh, phase two anchor data that has looked at uh, the triplet. Again, this is before the beacon readout when the study was designed, but showing that there's higher response rates in a first line setting. So the earlier that the targeted therapies are administered, at least a trend towards improved outcome. 
And that's kind of uh, set the stage then uh, for the ongoing uh, breakwater trial, which is now asking the question, do we even get better outcomes when we're administering these targeted therapies in uh, first-line treatment? So this is a, a large uh, study uh, that uh, both Dr. Yeager and I have the privilege of uh, being involved in, uh, over 800 patients to be enrolled. Um, and patients are getting randomized between uh, control chemotherapy, kind of a uh, provider's choice of Fulfox, Fulfury, Kpox, Fulfoxiri with or without bevacizumab, and uh, a treatment arm of ancorafenib and cetuximab alone, kind of a targeted therapy only, chemo-free arm, or the combination of ancorafenib, cetuximab, and either Fulfox or Fulfury. Uh, the primary endpoint is uh, PFS, and, uh, and again, this is a study that's uh, actively ongoing. So there are a number of other efforts uh, being initiated, and we talked a little bit about some of the excitement around uh, the hope about moving this into the adjuvant setting. There are studies looking at combinations with uh, immunotherapy uh, based on uh, some of that transcriptomic uh, associations and preclinical and early clinical data as talked about before. So I think uh, the the encouraging thing is this is a subset of, of patients that there's a lot of uh, efforts and research ongoing, and we certainly hope that we'll be able to build on the ankyrafenib and cetuximab uh, backbone um, and our improved understanding uh, of the biology in the future. So in conclusion, uh, BRAF V600E uh, mutated metastatic colorectal cancer has poor prognosis and now novel therapeutic options. The, hopefully we've convinced you that BRAF uh, testing should be done as part of uh, standard of care uh, and should be done early in the treatment course. So as Dr. Yeager and I uh, mentioned, we've really uh, test this at the, uh, the uh, diagnosis of metastatic disease. Combination strategies to treat uh, BRAF E600E and second or third line are now FDA approved with ankorafenib and cetuximab, uh, now FDA approved. And as discussed, uh, ankorafenib and panitumumab on the NCCN guidelines. Uh, should be aware of the side effects that can come with that, but, but these are ones that can be readily uh, managed uh, with conservative measures and as discussed. We're excited by the future direction of the field, both uh, first-line studies that are uh, being initiated, uh, adjuvant studies that are uh, in late development, and the, uh, the hope that we'll be able to have novel combinations to build upon ankorafenib and cetuximab uh, for metastatic patients. So with that, thank you for your uh, uh, interest uh, in this uh, presentation and, and, uh, and discussion. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.